0: 3CR 3CR broadcast from the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded in this country. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, our guests a cabaret performer turned actor Bradley Storer and blogger Alastair Laurie joins us to talk about new legislation being put forward by Mark Latham's One Nation in New South Wales that raises the rights of gender diverse and kids with intersex variations in schools. 3CR! Well, Bradley Storer is a cabaret performer and actor from Melbourne, and I chatted with him this week. Bradley, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. How did you get to be called the dark princeling of cabaret? Tell us about that journey. <laughs> um, no, So
1: I, when I began in cabaret back in 2011, I believe it was, oh gosh, the Civil War had just ended, Lincoln was still president. Um <laughs> But uh, when I first started in cabaret, I did primarily start as a dark cabaret artist. Um, And then uh, for a few years after that, I went to music theatre school and took a detour from the cabaret circuit for a while. And then when I made a belated return in 2016 with a show called Trickster, yeah, I had a friend, Jennifer Kingwell, who gave me the name, the Dark Princeling of Cabaret. I did not name myself. That would be a little bit too much. But um, no, but I quite enjoyed that nickname. And then when I was performing across at the Adelaide Fringe in 2017, the media also picked up on that nickname. And so it's just kind of stuck ever since. So I felt it's very appropriate. So I'm just like, okay, that's going in the media release.
0: Because <laughs> you do have an attraction to Dark Cabaret. You know, can you tell us more about that? Like what what fuels that? Oh, I think it's just been
1: always a fascination with, with, uh, with darkness and with the extremes of human behavior, just with the just the far-ranging reactions to all kind of stimuli that humans have and just the boundaries we can end up pushing past and just the things we can be pushed to in the most extreme of circumstances. And also just my love of alternative artists like Kate Bush, Nick Cave, Tori Amos, the Dresden Dolls, so artists who have quite a very, yeah, very dark sensibility, but also often a lot of humour or irony, but wrapped up in their work. So it's often very, very dark themes balanced out with a but with a misanthropic but humorous worldview.
0: <laughs> so have you always been musical as a child? Like, were you always one of these kids that just you know? picked up any instrument or, or was singing at an early age like did you always did you always have this intention to pursue this musical direction
1: well not necessarily where well, I did pick up a lot of musical instruments when I was younger because I went through the violin and then piano then guitar and then the clarinet um wasn't particularly talented with any and I thought for a while I was actually going to be a writer and then which you know is also great and then I <laughs> quickly realized I'm just like oh I don't have the patience for going through because but I was like, I want to write a story and then I just want to be done with it. Whereas the process of being a writer is going back and rewriting over and over again and it's like editing, making notes. And I was like, oh no, I'm just like, that. don't think that's me. And then just, yeah, I've been singing since I was about 14 and just, yeah, I just enjoyed that and I found I had some talent for it. And so then, yeah, when I turned about 18, 19, I started receiving singing lessons and just, I went all in on that. And just from that, that's kind of, yeah, that steered my career down a certain path.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because you said you couldn't write a book because, you know, you were almost <laughs> implying that you were impatient. But it <laughs> yeah. sounds like you've, you've devoted great patience to your, to your singing.
1: Yeah, I know. It's just
0: like, it's the same kind
1: of discipline. It's just, I suppose, because with performance, the reaction is instantaneous, whereas with writing, you do have a long period between creating the work, editing it, putting it out there before you can actually have some feedback. I suppose I was just impatient for the immediacy of a reaction
0: with an audience. (laughs) So you've got a great fascination as well with Weimar Cabaret. Define Weimar Cabaret for us and why you find it so alluring.
1: So in a very but oh dry sense the Weimar period was the period in Germany at the end of post the end of World War 1 where Kaiser Wilhelm II resigned from the thrones of Prussia and Germany and then uh, Germany became a rep- a republic by default and then that same period ended in 1933 when Hitler became arch chancellor and which led into World War II. So in between those two periods was this very volatile political and social period in germany and because it was also coinciding with lots of economic instability all over the world for example the great depression happened in america and had ripples everywhere across the world Um, and so in this period it was just very dynamic there was a lot of social change happening like a lot of uh, sexuality gender fluidity and all these things were being explored in this very but very liberal in the very liberal city of Berlin. Um, And also in this period there was a lot of, yeah, very magnificent poetry and music being created and there's all these very extreme things. Like, um, for example, there was a trend in that time of uh, people writing songs about child murderers or actually children who became murderers. (laughs) It's such these weird trends that were emerging which are just kind of but just you know, unthinkable of, but did happen. Um, And so it's just that, yeah, that period of history with its aesthetic is just, it's been attractive to a lot of artists. I mean, we have the very famous movie Cabaret, which is set in that period, kind of giving a little taste of what that's like. And just, yeah, it's, the attraction of it is just, I think, Oh, what was it, been described as by, by certain poets as being a period of dancing on the volcano. So just of being this idea of being caught between two worlds and like kind of dancing on a knife edge that could fall into chaos or into destruction at any moment. So, yeah, just a very fertile but very, or oh, very unsure period of history, which is what makes it so attractive to a lot of people.
0: And, of course, great parallels with what's happening today as well. It sounds oh, like oh. dark cabaret that he into Weimar cabaret (laughs) and there's a lot of parallels between that era and the current era.
1: Yes indeed Um, and of course Weimar cabaret more specifically was about exploring social and political themes at the time like looking at yeah at murder and at racism and at all these horrible things that were happening so I think yeah uh, taking that into now there is a lot to explore with yeah a lot of things are happening across the world at the moment just with yeah, the but just like the entire, but, you know, a lot of economies being swept away by COVID and then all of the but things that are happening in America at the moment with the, with the rise of Donald Trump and with just white supremacy becoming very, very apparent. Um, yeah, so it's there's a lot to draw on at the moment if you're an artist.
0: <laughs> Do you think the times really suit Weimar Cabaret and that we could see a real revival of that, of that genre?
1: I think so. Um, yes, yeah, with its idea of dissecting and looking at the darker aspects of humanity, I think that is very current because that kind of thing is being shoved in our face all the time, just of yeah, black people being shot by police and just like all this by income inequality looking at people being forced into poverty and yeah, just the very the very bleak things that are happening, I think, but would do suit the Weimar aesthetic very well. Though it's the challenge, I think, is trying to find a kind of finding humor in it, which I think is hard to do considering how overwhelming it all feels feels. But also, yeah, it's still possible.
0: <laughs> 3CR You're listening to an interview with Bradley Stora on 3CRs in your face. So tell us about what you've been up to artistically during COVID. Oh, well, yeah,
1: um, during this period, I've been, I'm in a massive position of privilege because I do still have a stable income and a stable job, which is outside of the arts industry. But of course, because most of the arts in Australia has been, unfortunately, been severely damaged by what's happened and by all the shutdowns. I think a lot of us have been forced to move. I've seen a lot of people have been forced to move their practices online or start just seeking new ways to do it. Personally, for me, I've just been investing in, but like in things that can help me practice my practice, do my practice at home within my own space. Which I think have you seen? Which is just being able to just do something as simple as just make a video in my own room in my own little corner and just sing a song to put. Directly out and for people to be able to see. Um, and other than that, I have been doing a, Actually, at the very beginning of the movement, it was. <laughs> there was a lot of energy from a lot of people who were just like okay while we're in lockdown we're gonna let's just get to band together artistic groups and let's just do whatever we can and I was involved in a lot of groups that were doing play, do play readings which was wonderful just discovering old and new works and things like that and then out of that I've actually been involved in I'm now currently involved in the development of a new work which is uh by a company called Misfit uh, Toys and the play play called early days which is a wonderful romantic comedy which is about a cis man and a trans man who meet by accident one day in a hospital waiting room and then end up uh, dating and the play follows along on the trials and tribulations of doing that which is something currently we're working on and which is very very wonderful um Yeah, and then other than that, I've still been able to maintain some kind of training practice with a lot of things going online via Zoom, which has been an adjustment, of course, because a lot of things like acting and singing do need the immediacy of being in the room with someone, but eventually you get used to it and you work around it and you can still make progress. So that's what I've been getting up to. The play
0: sounds really exciting. Mm. Tell us about the role you play in it.
1: So I play the role of Marcus, who is a cis man who uh, runs into the very first scene of the play is uh, (laughs) almost inappropriate, is set in the wedding room actually of a family planning clinic. And so then I walk in because I'm there to pick up a friend and then I sit down, I start having a chat with someone who is in the wedding room as well, another guy who's there having a chat about each other and then eventually I go oh like who are you waiting for like is your friend in there and then this new friend I've made goes um well actually I'm here for myself because I am a trans man and so I'm getting uh, an appointment for myself and so it was a very unlikely beginning but then blossoms into a beautiful little relationship that we explore through the play and kind of yeah the dynamics of that kind of but uh, of things that we haven't seen before and like I think one of the best parts of it has been we assume the audience has a base knowledge of trans issues and of trans identity so we don't get wrapped up in the idea of trying to explain things to an audience We're just like we're going to get straight down to this and just exploring this relationship rather than trying to like saying that the audience has no knowledge of it and we try and explain oh this is what cis means or this is what trans means it's just nope let's get straight to the meat of this we want to find find out what this kind of relationship is like
0: and it sounds like you're absolutely loving it. I can hear it in your voice.
1: Oh yeah, I'm very passionate about this project, just because it's a story that, yes, we have seen, we have, I've seen a little bit of fall between a trans person and a cis person, but we do often, I think, before because the storyline has been new. And I, but you can't see, but I'm doing air quotation marks. I said we have gotten caught up in this idea of, I think, and there's a lot of study about it at the moment of course that we that there is some kind of reluctance or ambivalence in the cis character where they're like going oh i'm attracted to a trans person i'm like there's just like am i but does this mean i am either gay or am i not gay or what's going on here whereas I think yeah, we but with this one, it's just no. It's we but accept it. It's like there's no ambivalence on that end. It's just a, but it's just a relationship between two people who happen to be a cis and a trans person. And I think that is but yeah something that we haven't seen before, where there isn't that <laughs> issue of trying to whether the cis character isn't trying to think, oh, is this bad or is this wrong? It's like no, nope, that's not an issue in this play. That's not what we're exploring.
0: So it sounds like you've got a great connection with the other actors as well in the production. Can you tell us a bit more about your connection with them?
1: Oh yes, yeah. so it's just a two-handed piece with another actor named Laura Burns, um, and Laura and I actually did meet through the play rings we were doing through uh, the writer of the play Darby Turnbull, um, and I think the first time we met, we were doing a we we're doing a reading of a modernised adaptation of Chekhov's The Seagull. And so in, in that play, in that reading, just like I was playing the character that's based on Constantin from the original play, and then Law was also playing Constantin's best friend, and just from that, we just found we had this very natural chemistry, like we had never met before, never. we've actually still never met in person, which is very interesting, but just via Zoom there was just such a chemistry and just and ability to play off each other we really loved. And so then I was involved in an early reading of this play where we did, uh, but yeah, where it was Laura and me playing against each other, which was all conducted via Zoom and yeah, exploring the text. And then I came back later on to audition for the piece and just, yeah, through this whole thing, it's just been, we have, yeah, just seem to have a, natural ability to connect and play with each other which has been wonderful to explore and Laura's also a wonderful actor so it's just been magnificent to be able to explore this text with them and yeah be a part of this journey
0: so you've been doing zoom rehearsals
1: (laughs) yes which is always very interesting because we did at one point think uh just like should we try doing some some kind of staging just like and we did experiment with that and then we're just like mm, no probably not a good idea for the moment because originally the piece was meant for a festival in Ballarat in November but of course uh because of the ongoingness of lockdowns and just uh, concerns about COVID, the festival decided to cancel itself this year. So uh, we're currently looking at some kind of production or some kind of presentation in December, which we're not sure at the moment if we'll be in person or if it will be via Zoom. But, yeah, we'll be looking at that for the future. So, yes, like it's hard. Do we bring in a physical aspect at this point or is it just better to work on the text? And so far we have just like, okay, we're just going to work on the text and working on the dynamic and the relationships that are in it at the moment before we work on physical staging if we can actually get into the same
0: space at any point. And it sounds like you're having an absolute ball. Can we expect to see you going much more in this direction of theatre?
1: Oh, in the in the direction of dramatic acting. Well, um, I said I would certainly love to. I said, but it's not been something I've had much of an opportunity to explore before. But it is definitely something that I'm passionate about. I said, just the ability to explore, just yeah, the ability to just act without like acting without singing or dancing. What is this? I'm just like I don't know. If it's never going to catch on, but you know, it's like we'll give it a go.
0: And of course, you have been singing on Twitter and Facebook. Tell us about some of the tracks you've been singing and Mm -hmm. what we can expect uh, you to record in the future. Oh, yes.
1: (laughs) So, uh, some of the tracks I've been playing have been songs that I have sung before from the old musical theatre audition book that I was just missing and like have happy memories attached to them of the people I've sung them for, the people I've sung. With accompanying me. So they've been things as uh, varied as Cole Porter, as uh, Barbara Streisand's song. We've had Fleetwood Mac. And I think, yeah, just the other day we had a Sting track by way of Ava Cassidy. So it has just been, and oh, yeah, sometimes they've been mostly more upbeat things because I, yeah, it's been that opposite thing of just like in this time where there's so much doubt and so much. Yeah, unrest and just we're all very anxious and very, very frightened that um, just like maybe I've wanted to offer something a little lighter and just something very easy to listen to, something just that's a little oasis in that moment away from everything that's happening. Um, And then I think a couple of weeks ago when we were put back into the next stage of lockdown, I did sing a very, very dark song by Cy Coleman, which also did feel very appropriate, it was a little duck into the darkness that we were experiencing. But, yeah, mostly overall it's just been... Honestly, it's just been songs that I've just thought, "Oh, I would love to sing that." And just the experience of being able to just sing it in, basically, in a corner of my own home with just no no real need to project or perform it extremely has been very lovely. Just have the intimacy of just singing to a camera, singing to the audience on the other side of the camera has been wonderful to explore and that dynamic and just uncover new colorings and new things in, in my voice, which has been interesting.
0: Wow. Okay. So, what have you discovered about your voice?
1: Oh, it's just because uh, anyone who knows me knows that I am a be- big, big belter, love to make a big sound and just the ability to just sit in the corner and just know there's no need to like belt it out for the rafters, which I do love, but just the ability to just be able to make it very soft, very intimate, very, very small in a way that still feels authentic has been beautiful to be able to discover and just the softer colorings of my voice and to explore those aspects of it, which is, yeah, been a great opportunity.
0: And, of course, it's beautifully lit as well, which goes with the softer (laughs) texture of the mood and the (laughs) ambience that you're doing. It's very chilled, actually. It's not a a Belter's work at all.
1: Oh, thank you. So I'll be honest, most of the lighting is just my little bedroom lamp that I have set up on a bedside table. Um, But I'm glad the lighting is being appreciated.
0: (laughs) Bradley Stora, it's been absolutely awesome hearing about your work and what you've been up to. Thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
2: 3CR. chest and under here sir your lovely voice at my hair as it waves and waves sir under here I have such pretty hair silver it is and filled with silver bubbles and under here my blood will be a cloud and under here sir my dreams are made of water Oh way. you, and under here, sir, I am washed clean, and I glow with the greatness of my hate
3: for
4: Bradley
0: Storer, covering the Cave's Little Water, accompanied by Ned Dixon.
4: There's kind of a, lot of a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving. Um, and how those, how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very, very sort of different forms and very you know, important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture
0: that was zoo in the morning. Well, One Nation's Education Amendment Bill in New South Wales erases the rights of gender diverse and kids with intersex variations under the guise of parental rights. And I chatted with Alistair Laurie this week about the bill.
5: Alistair, tell us what this bill is trying to achieve. Thanks very much. So Mark Latham's... Education Legislation Amendment, Parental Rights Bill, seeks to prohibit teaching about what it calls gender fluidity. Now, gender fluidity is then defined as a belief there is a difference between biological sex, including people who are by their chromosomes, male or female, but are born with disorders of sexual differentiation, and human gender, and that human gender is socially constructed rather than being equivalent to a person's biological sex. So, in short, It means prohibiting teaching that gender identity can be different to biological sex. Even worse, it then applies a really broad definition of teaching, so that means any teaching, instruction, counselling and advice provided to students by non-teaching school executives, non-teaching school counsellors, non-teaching staff, contractors, advisors and consultants and even volunteers at a school so basically, that means that when you put those two definitions together, no one connected to a school in New South Wales would be allowed to acknowledge that trans and gender diverse people exist if this bill is passed.
0: The ideology behind this bill sounds horrific. Uh, what are your insights into where it's come from?
5: I, I agree that it seems to be based on an ideology that it is preferable to erase trans and, and Gender diverse students, if possible, um, and that it's it's better to have transgender diverse students forced into hiding than it is to have happy and well-adjusted transgender diverse students. So, in terms of, there are a number of serious consequences from the potential passage of this bill. So, for example, transgender diverse kids in classrooms and schoolyards would be erased struggling transgender diverse kids would be left without access to supportive counseling and advice uh, there's a potential fear that transgender diverse kids would be exposed to transphobic bullying because for a teacher or staff member or volunteer to intervene to protect that child and their gender identity would mean acknowledging that their gender identity exists and therefore that could potentially be breaching the law and even for transgender diverse teachers there's a risk that they would not be able to affirm who they are and their pronouns because in doing so they would be acknowledging that gender identity and biological sex can be different and again they could be accused of breaching this law.
0: So where is the bill at parliamentary wise? like give us some give us a sense of its current travels through Parliament, its trajectory if you like.
5: The bill was introduced in early August. Uh, unfortunately, it was then moved straight to a parliamentary inquiry, which normally is an opportunity to explore the problems of a bill and for the community to, to point out why a bill is flawed. In this case, the chair of that inquiry is Mark Latham himself, so that means we're off to a bad start. Uh, ideally, what we would like to see happen is that for Premier Gladys Berejiklian of uh, the Coalition, and for Opposition Leader Jodie McKay uh, of the Labor Party to both publicly say that they will not support this bill and that this bill, no matter what happens at the inquiry, will not be passed in New South Wales because transgender diverse kids have a right to exist and should not be erased in this way.
0: Do you think Mark Latham should step down as the chair of the inquiry? It seems like a, a terrible conflict of interest.
5: I would like to see the Legislative Council uh, revoke the inquiry and say that uh, there is no need to explore this bill because it is su- such a damaging and destructive attack on the LGBTI community generally.
0: Yes, and that begs the question of the Premier, how did she let this uh, get so far? I mean, the politics of doing something like this are terrible at any time, let alone during a pandemic, against an already vulnerable community.
5: I think to some extent it uh, has been dressed up in a language uh, that potentially hides some of its worst impacts. So, as the title says, this is supposed to be about parental rights. And for for some of us who've been involved in LGBTI rights in Australia for decades now, we're quite used to attacks in our community being dressed up as uh, using the language of won't somebody think of the children, whereas in this case it's dressed up as trying to assert the right, supposed rights of parents uh, about the instruction of their children, except the way that Mark Latham has gone about it in this bill is basically that saying that the morality of transphobes is more important than the reality of trans and gender-diverse kids. And I'd also like to highlight, while the, the primary provisions are an attack on trans and gender-diverse kids themselves, this actually affects LGB students and also intersex students. So, for example, where it talks about teaching matters of parental primacy, it includes provisions that say uh, teaching about anything to do with sexuality needs to be strictly non-ideological instruction. And the words non-ideological instruction are to be taken to include general teaching about matters of parental primacy as distinct from advocating or promoting dogmatic or polemical ideology. Now, again, for those of us who who are maybe perhaps a little bit older, we remember the UK's Section 28 provisions, which prohibited the promotion of homosexuality as pretend relationships. And so from 1988 to 2003 in UK schools, a lot of teachers and principals feared even mentioning homosexuality because they could be seen as uh, breaching the prohibitions on promotion. And so in this case, we're looking at the potential for an Australian version of Section 28, which was a failed policy, left a generation of UK school kids alone, scared and isolated and without essential access to not just general inclusive content, but safer sex education. We could be seeing the introduction of an equivalent policy to that here, leaving our own kids scared, isolated and alone, uh, and that's just not good enough in 2020.
0: The legislation sounds incredibly right-wing and incredibly reactionary. Does the attack against the intersex community surprise you? I mean, it seems to be incredibly spiteful, doesn't it? I,
5: I, I genuinely don't know where the inappropriate uh, and unacceptable wording on uh, intersex kids comes from. So as we talked about at the start, it includes the definition and gender fluidity, includes the words um children who are born with disorders of sexual, sexual differentiation. And I think this might be the first time that that would be included in legislation, presumably, to talk about children born with variations or intersex variations of sex characteristics. And that's really problematic and stigmatising language and contributes to a culture where uh many cases, doctors and uh, parents agree to inflict human rights abuses on intersex children uh, to try and make them somehow fit into societal expectations of male and female. So uh, as well as being an attack on trans and gender diverse kids and as we've seen uh, lesbian, gay and bisexual kids too, the, the language around intersex here is, is really problematic and um, needs to be removed.
0: What evoked this attack? Is it is it a reaction, a backlash against safe schools, uh, or is that just the excuse they're using? Like, um, is this about safe schools?
5: I think it's using uh, controversy around the the wording of safe schools to attack and erase trans and gender diverse kids and LGBTI kids generally. Uh, I, I think there has been such a sustained sustained attack on the branding of safe schools. That um, this is trying to be hidden in in that attack or part of that attack, um, but the just the the level of erasure that would be involved in this legislation is something that I genuinely don't think I've seen uh, this century. This century, yes, in the last few decades, it it really seeks to wind back the clock to a time where. Uh, Anything to do with our community just couldn't even be mentioned, leaving kids alone and and vulnerable and invisible. And uh, that is such a damaging philosophy to be imposed by a law where teachers would be guilty of an offence if they try and support children.
0: Just looking at the government for a moment, politically, where where does this sit with them? Uh, do you think it'll just be dismissed eventually out of hand once Mark Latham's inquiry is done and dusted? Or are you concerned that the uh, New South Wales government will actually pick up bits and pieces of this legislation to create their own bill?
5: I'm hopeful that uh, our community and our allies can make it very clear to the government and the opposition that uh, LGBT kids, LGBTI kids exist and... Uh, that we can't be erased, that they cannot be erased from classrooms and that there's simply no choice but to reject this bill. Uh, I, I think that we've already started very well to point out just how extreme this legislation is and I really hope that Gladys Berejiklian and Jodie McKay are listening. 3CR. You're listening to an
0: interview with Alistair Laurie on 3CRs in your face. Are you concerned that, you know, uh, Mark Latham getting traction on a bill like this actually kind of, you know, encourages the federal government to continue on its merry way with its religious discrimination legislation?
5: I think that uh, actually we should point out that Mark Latham has his own religious freedom legislation in the New South Wales Parliament as well. So this is, uh, that bill was introduced a couple of months ago and has already been subject to public consultation. So, he submissions on his Religious Freedom Bill closed on Friday and that inquiry will be ongoing until March. And so, this is a kind of an extension of that, but a, a much more specific attack just on the LGBT kid, LGBTI kids in schools. Um, so, I think his Religious Freedom laws are equally bad to the Commonwealth ones, just in slightly different ways and diff- with slightly different emphases on, on what they prioritise.
0: And it really is an attack, isn't it? Like, that's not an exaggerated term. It really is a two-pronged attack.
5: I certainly think that the the Educational Legislation Amendment Parental Rights Bill cannot be seen in any other way than a a full-frontal attack on our community and on our kids. And that means that we need to have a uh, full-throated defence of our community and defence of our kids.
0: How is this issue playing out in the New South Wales media? Uh, are the Ray Hadley's of this world having a field day? Like, how's, how's, it, how's it going in the mainstream?
5: My assessment generally is that it hasn't been subject to much reporting yet, which is, is a good thing as far as uh, I'm concerned because really it's so awful and so retrograde that we don't need an extended debate about it. What we need is for the Premier and opposition leader to come out, say that it won't be supported uh, say that this bill will die if it ever reaches the floor, if it is ever debated in Parliament, um, so that it doesn't become a, a kind of postal survey, months-long debate about whether trans and diverse kids have the right to exist.
0: Why are Gladys and Jody not actually speaking out on this bill? I mean, it would seem to me that it would be a slam dunk uh, and would certainly offer the
5: community a lot of assurance I think you'd have to ask them. I, I, I agree. I think it's a really uh, straightforward issue. Either you support a, a damaging attack on the LGBTI community or you affirm that LGBTI kids are real and have the right to a safe and inclusive education. Um, that, uh, that choice shouldn't take more than about five seconds. So I would, I would be hopeful that they will come out soon and both say that this is something that cannot pass.
0: Are you surprised that Jodie Mackay hasn't done that already? I mean, you know, even on the grounds of the Labor movement aspects of this with the attacks on teachers, you'd think that she would be wanting to support those teachers who are union members, for example. Like, it just seems extraordinary that she's been silent on the issue thus far.
5: I I, I don't know whether she's been silent or not. Uh, I'm not... up to date with all of her public pronouncements. Um, But you're right, the education unions as well are are strongly campaigning against this bill. So it leaves me hopeful that ultimately they will do the right, that the Labor Party will do the right thing and oppose it, Uh, and then hopefully the government will as well. In in a perfect world, this is something that should have a bipartisan agreement and perhaps they could even jointly uh, say that they will refuse to support this bill.
0: Of course, Mark Latham is the leader of One Nation in New South Wales. Uh, Has Pauline Hanson commented on this bill, as far as you're aware?
5: I'm not aware whether Pauline Hanson has uh, has commented on this bill specifically. I did note that there were some comments reported last week uh, that she supported trans children being removed from their parents if their parents supported the child affirming their gender identity or, or words to that effect. Uh, which is obviously extremely concerning uh, and reinforces the, the nature of this bill, which is that it is an attack on trans and gender diverse kids and there's no shying away from that.
0: On the federal front, of course, you have uh, written extensively about the federal government's religious discrimination legislation. You've also been lobbying hard against it, uh, speaking to various MPs and, and, and stakeholders. Uh, behind the scenes, where is this legislation at?
5: So the Commonwealth Religious Discrimination Bill appears to be on pause. Uh, That doesn't mean that it won't go ahead in future. Uh, Indeed, it could come back in the last third of this year, or last quarter of this year. It could come back in the first half of next year. Um, Despite coronavirus, despite economic recession, we've still seen some right-wing government backbenchers saying that passing the Religious Discrimination Bill remains a priority for the government or should remain a priority for the government. So we should be ready uh, and willing to stand up against it uh, if it is introduced to Parliament in the next sort of six to nine months.
0: So even though the legislation is officially on hold, obviously those uh, supporters of the bill within the government aren't resting on their lulls, uh, is there a hive of activity still going on behind the scenes without this
5: legislation? I'm not sure about that. Certainly the more public proponents of the legislation haven't let up. So groups like the Australian Christian Lobby and others still see it as an essential reform uh, for them to achieve this term. So I think that unfortunately we're far more likely to see the Religious Discrimination Bill being introduced into Parliament than any legislation to try and enact Scott Morrison's October 2018, promise to protect LGBT LGBT kids in high schools.
0: It begs belief, doesn't it, that that promise hasn't been uh, honoured, considering, you know, the big song and dance he made just before the Wentworth by-election about promising to do that. It's really disappointing.
5: It's such a straightforward, uh, some might say, another easy decision that LGBT kids in schools should be protected against discrimination on the basis of who they are, the public... Clearly, when the Religious Freedom Review recommendations were released, showed that they were highly supportive of a change to protect LGBT kids. The opposition, uh, the Greens both said that they would pass it and the government, while it made that promise, never actually introduced legislation and then referred it to the Australian Law Reform Commission and now say that the Australian Law Reform Commission can't even start looking at it until after the Religious Discrimination Bill debate is finished. So what should have been a bill that passed in two weeks or a month uh, in time for the 2019 school year looks unlikely to pass before the end of 2021, uh, so won't even be in place for the 2022 school year. So that's another three years of LGBT kids graduating school while knowing that they can be expelled, mistreated or otherwise discriminated against just because of who they are.
0: I mean it's an issue of, of a huge kind of you know, I mean it's, it's incredibly disingenuous of the government to have, to have gone down this path after making that promise, uh, and certainly cuts to the issue of integrity, I think certainly for the prime minister who who was very, very vocal on on that promise.
5: Uh, I think it's a very clear example of a, a broken promise. Uh, I think that we should be doing more to hold him to account for that, for abandoning. LGBT kids in religious schools around Australia, that, that really he briefly said that he would stand up for them uh, and then has just walked away from that and seems to be quite gladly ignoring that.
0: What can you tell us about the Labor Party and and what's going on with it in relation to this legislation? I guess they're relieved that it's on hold, but I mean, they must surely not kind of be taking that on face value. What are your sources telling you about the Labor Party and this and this
5: bill? I don't think I've heard much from the Labor Party uh, since coronavirus struck and the bill was put on pause. Uh, I don't think we've still yet had a clear position from Labor that they will block it if it's along the lines of the the second exposure draft, which is what they really need to be saying, that it is so extreme uh, and justifies or would introduce new forms of discrimination that it could not be passed. Uh, So as well as advocating to government, if and when they bring a religious discrimination bill back, we still need to secure that public commitment from Labor that they would not pass it either.
0: Alice Lory, thank you so much for chatting with me on 3CR. It's always great to have you on
5: the show. Thanks very much for your time.
3: 3CR
0: session with their remix of crying game we'll catch you next week on in your face when you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging they're actually quite different ecosystems generally like older wetter forests
2: go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on nine four one nine 3CR.